Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Well, um, it's good to be here. Good to be in Franklin. I want to thank Brant. I I mean, the guy really put... Best I could tell, he put some real work into this thing, and, and I'm sure there were other people involved. And thanks, Franklin, for doing this. You guys are are being consistent, and and you're doing the deal, and we appreciate it. And I I just was thinking about speaking, and I've heard I heard that uh, a good speaker never apologizes for what he's about to say. So what I want to start with is just saying sorry. Y'all are stuck with me. <laughs> You know, um, the title of this talk is, is Lust and Attitude Demanding. It comes from page 40 on the, in the white book. To me, it's the definition of lust as far as I'm concerned. And we'll, we'll get into that just a little bit. Um, there's, there's three things I was thinking about. Step one says we admitted we were powerless over lust. Step three, I mean, tradition three uh, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop lusting. And then in, in, in the reading, what is a sexaholic and the sobriety definition, it says true sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. And that's where this conversation came from. And we're here to talk about lust. We're here today to talk about lust. And I will tell you that I, lust is my drug of choice, but it's not my only drug of choice. Um, I heard a guy say at one time, he said, his drug of choice is what do you got? And that's pretty much the way I approach life. Uh, I think maybe I'm addicted to ease and comfort. Uh, The only thing I've never been accused of doing in excess is work. And, you know, I'm not sure anybody will ever say, hey, Brad, we think you need to go to uh, six meetings of Workaholics Anonymous. You know, I have a hard time getting to work. I have a hard time working at work. Um, you know, all of that. So other than that, uh, you know, if you've got one, let's do ten. And that's been kind of my approach to life. Um, the focus today is on lust. It's one of the central components of recovery from sexaholism. But the question is, how often do we really sit down and talk about our basic understanding of what lust really is. And I'm glad to be here doing that today. And I'm hoping that we can just have conversation. Um, I know it's being recorded. I asked Marcus about picking up from from the people in the room, and, and he said it he, he wouldn't be a problem. So I'm going to open up for discussion on a couple points, if that's all right with you all. 
what I want to do is I want to look at kind of three things that kind of go together for me. One is lust, the word, just the concept, the idea of lust, the concept of the word attitude, and then this last one is, is, is called, I call it spiritual action. And I want to just share kind of what those mean to me and how I've experienced that in my recovery. And um, talking about stuff like that, it's real easy to get like up in my head. I love to live up in my head and just, whoa, concepts and philosophical codes and kind of all kinds of stuff that means nothing. <laughs> but it's important. Important also for me to develop an understanding. There's a line in the big book. It says on page 84, we've entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And and there's a guy that I know out in uh, California. He came to Nashville a couple of years ago and did a happy, joyous, and free conference. His name's Howard P. And I'm fortunate enough to kind of be in an email group that he chimes in on occasionally. And one of the things he said recently is keep it simple does not mean dumb it down. You know, it's like, yeah, let's keep it simple, but we don't have to necessarily just dumb this program down. I think that's one of the things we get in trouble with is um, people come in, come into SA as a uh, support group for checking in all the work they're doing in all these other places in their life, you know, all these growth and but we got a lot of growth and a lot of power right here. A lot of people have gotten really well doing these 12 steps. And, and I think we can't give away our power. So anyway, um, let's just talk about this idea. Just The first question I want to ask you guys to th- consider is, how did your understanding of lust begin? And how has it changed? What is your working definition of lust? And what is your working definition of progressive victory over lust? If you guys ever want to read that definition, it's in a pamphlet called Why Stop Lusting. And that's where, I mean, that's, they've, they've gotten that down in really well in that particular little uh, pamphlet. I'll give you all a couple of my... my uh, Kind of early experiences, and you know, for me, uh, my my relationship with lust, I think it progressed. You know, the progression of lust in my life is something I, I had to look at. One of the reasons I love to volunteer to tell my story or work do something at a workshop like this or something, it makes me do some work. And and part of what part of what I was doing here is kind of doing some inventory. Okay, what did lust look like as I was growing into this disease and as I was becoming a full-fledged sexaholic? And and I remember as a kid, you know, I tell people my my one of my one of my uh, people important in my life said, "You need to like all the girls and it's a compliment whenever a girl likes you." And that sounds a whole like lot like we lusted and we want to be lusted after. And then the other person in my life that was an important authority figure said, sex is bad, it's wrong, 
It's bad to think about. It's wrong to think. You don't, you don't even allow it into your mind. And then you only do it with the person that you love. <laughs> you know, so you're going to spend your life doing this very bad thing with this person that you love. And that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and so put those two together and, and try to figure that out. And, of course, um, there was some guilt and shame wrapped into all of that as well. A friend of ours, a friend of mine at the meeting yesterday said his his mother worked in guilt like Michelangelo worked in oils, <laughs> which I think some of us could relate to that. But lust for me was the uh, first thing I could think of was lust was looking at or thinking about someone and then using my imagination to create a sexual fantasy about that person. When I was a kid, I had this fantasy that uh, this girlfriend, I always had girlfriends. I mean, like that was, I had been given the instruction, like all the girls, so I'm going to go out and do that. And I had this fantasy about this one girl that I had a camera in my bedroom, and she had one in her bedroom, and we could see each other uh, by video. Of course, that was like in the 60s. So I figure I invented the webcam. It, lust was my reaction to a person that appeared attractive to me. I don't think it was any more, I don't know any more explanation to it than that. It's like, huh, there's something there. Uh, it became wanting to have a sexual experience with myself or someone else. You know, uh, I, I experienced, my, my introduction to masturbation was when I was 10 years old. I was in the boys' bathroom at school. For most people, a very innocent moment. One of the other guys masturbated. He, he kind of was just, hey, look, you know, and I was 10 years old, and I'm like, well, I'll try that. And, I, I mean, how many times does that happen in America and around the world? Ten-year-old boys get exposed to somebody doing masturbation. Not a big deal for most of them, but for me... Man, it became something extremely... I had that aha ah moment, that wow, this is something, kind of like what George was saying, this is something I want to get myself lost in. And it became a daily kind of ritual for me almost immediately. So it was, at that point, lust kind of got itself attached to a sexual experience of some sort. Um, it was a, became a force that led me to cross boundaries that I, and engage in behaviors that I didn't think I would ever engage in or cross boundaries I never would cross. It was things that were against my moral standards. And that led to uh, guilt and that led to shame. And it also led to a continually, continual lowering of my moral standards. You know, once I crossed that boundary and that became part of my sexual repertoire, you might say, well, I just had to figure out a way to make that okay in my moral standards. So, and, and lust was the driving force behind all of that. Um, some people talk about hitting bottom, and, and I think this is when I began to start hitting bottoms. You know, I, I don't think bottom is... For me, bottom is not a fixed point. Bottom is not, well, this, this, and this, and this happened. Therefore, you, Brad, have hit bottom. That, that's not what it was like for me. Bottom is more like 
in my experience, falling off the edge of a cliff and landing on a ledge. And then I'll pick myself up and kind of dust off. You know, the first time I had sex with a prostitute. Coming home, supposed to have been in school. I always skip graduate school classes to go have sex with prostitutes. But it was that feeling of, man, I have really kind of crossed a boundary here. I've done something that's, you know, not really wasn't in the plan. But I had to kind of find a way to make things work. So I got kind of comfortable right there on that ledge. Then I got out to the edge of that one and look over. What else is out there? Bam! Go down, hit that next ledge. And then dust up, get up, dust off. And I had this partner in my marriage at that point. She's classic Essanon. She's a black belt now in Essanon, so look out. But she and I would get into these conversations, and it didn't really matter which one of us had acted out, one of us or the other. Somebody's gone outside and done something morally reprehensible. We'd come back together, and we kind of worked this thing out on that ledge, the two of us, on occasions, multiple occasions in our lives. And it was just constantly this, this kind of hitting this bottom, hitting this crash, and then figuring out a way to make it work. But it was always this kind of just a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And that went on for 40 years for me. My addiction started, I was 10 years old. I was 51 when I get in this program. That's 40 years, garden variety sexaholism. And what I try to do when I tell my story is make it clear this thing progresses and it gets worse. And there are bottoms along the way. And my bottom, finally in 2009, was kind of like the big book where it talks about the alcoholics, the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of life. You know, uh, beaten into a state of reasonableness. There was really no uh, enlightened self-interest on my part. <laughs> you know, I just went right past enlightened self-interest. And I, went, I had to hit a rock bottom, and, and I came home one night. I was supposed to be at an SA meeting. It seems like I was always skipping one thing to go do something else. But uh, I was supposed to be at an SA meeting, and Vicki, my wife, said, well, how was your meeting? And I went, oh, it was really good. And she knew I was lying from the moment my word, first word came out of my mouth. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have a reason to lie. There was just no reason to lie. It was like I'd run out of lies. I'd run out of reasons to lie. I don't know. But that was the only one and only time I ever admitted to her that I'd been acting out. I'd been having sex with someone else. I said, Vicki, I didn't go to the meeting. I went to her house. And uh, she said... Uh, well, somebody's going to have to die. That's basically what I remember her saying, (laughs) which meant, I think, something, one of these relationships, it's either me or her, kind of what she was saying. And and, um, when she said that, my knees went buckled up from under me. 
and I went to the ground. And uh, I literally laid in the floor of our bedroom and had gut-wrenching convulsions for I don't know exactly how long, probably something like an hour. But my, my, my whole body was wanting to get something out. You know, it was over. The jag was up, as they say. Um, that was kind of, till now, the last rock bottom I've had to hit. And that was October 28th, 2009. And for that, you know, for that progress of, of, gratitude, of recovery, I'm very grateful but at that point, you know, I just want to say this, and I'll move on. At that point, lust, be, lust was basically just a constant fog of obsession and just this incessant, ceaseless craving for some sort of relief or acting out. It's like the only way we knew to get, to get rid of it was to do it. And I was totally obsessed with lust. I was totally obsessed with sex either having sex or, or getting it, you know, and there's a, there's a program for, for drug addicts, and in their book they say the getting and using and finding ways and means to get and use more. That's what my life of addiction was about. And I would wake up in the mornings, think, with the first thought was, what chat line am I going on today, and who's going to be there, and how am I going to get them to meet me for lunch? <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. That was it. It was an obsession. And then I also had this unbelievable relationship with uh, my Madden NFL football franchise. And I would come home at night and, and say hello to my wife and kids and go straight to the back bedroom and play video games. And I knew more about my franchise football fo- fantasy franchise football team than I knew about my family because I had no desire to be in a real relationship and that was another obsession of mine anyway uh, I sold that uh, that video game a couple of years ago for 30 bucks and I think it's the best $30 I ever made anyway let's go on so I get in the program and I'm I'm beginning to have a victory over lust What, what did early victory over lust look like you know, come in here and y'all tell me, okay, first of all, you got to stop. And, and I, I don't know if I like that idea or not, <laughs> you know. You know, okay, I, I, I'll get sexually abstinent. We'll see what happens. But y'all say, stop. Stop the compulsive behavior. Get rid of all of the uh, play things and playmates and get rid of whatever it is that's keeping me involved. So one of the things I had to do was uh, uh, change of, change phones. Uh, I had to change phone numbers, and I had to get a flip phone. And I kept a flip phone in this program for about four and a half years. You know, I got to, I got to a place where I thought I was ready for a smartphone. I'm not sure if I am or not. Um, but I had to get rid of all my stashes, all of my connections, um, I had to learn to do the essay salute. Y'all know what that is. You know, she's driving down the highway. I'm going to just do the salute. Um, I learned to get out of bed when I was aroused. Don't lay in bed and you're aroused. Just get up. Don't 
feed that fantasy. Don't romance that that arousal. Just get out of bed. Uh, well, hell, that that means I may have to get up and go to work. You know, that just wasn't all in my program. But basically, a lot of it was all about taking some sort of concrete action. That was early victory over lust. Okay? Taking that concrete action, stopping that behavior. I've learned that. I call it now kind of getting rid of the wiggle room. You know, I allow myself wiggle room in this area or that area or over here, over there. Or maybe I'll catch her eye or, you know, maybe that lady in that meeting will want to talk to me afterwards about book study or something. You know, I've still got to let go of all that wiggle room. Get rid of that obvious stuff. Um, I, I, I got in therapy. You know, I did therapy. I went and did what the big book says. I got a doctor's opinion. And, and the doctor gave me their opinion. And, you know, and then they began to point me in some directions. And, and you know, most people I know in this program do that sort of work. And it's a great adjunct. My sponsor would say... Uh, he was talking to me about religion. I think it applies to therapy as well. He'd say religion is a great addition to the 12 steps. It's a poor substitute. And that's how he would tell me. So I, I did that. I went through withdrawal. Golly, withdrawal from lust is as powerful of an of a, of a, of a experience of anything I've ever had. I couldn't sleep. I'd sleep all the time. I was emotional. I cry at just. I remember uh, Nancy A. at a at a convention. She made this statement. She says, "No means no." And the next morning, I'm waking. I woke up. I'm sitting on my back porch, just bawling my eyes out. My wife said, "What's wrong?" No means no, and I'm just and I don't know where it even came from. But that no, saying the word no was not an easy thing for me to do, especially as a kid. And there were some times when maybe saying no might have been appropriate. But I remember that feeling. I remember one morning waking up and bawling, uh, crying my eyes out over uh, us another situation. Vicki came and said, again, she, she's kind of my uh, surrogate sponsor, sponsor at, you know, the woman has been amazing. But uh, she said, what's up, Brad? I said, I said, I never got to say goodbye to Harry. She's like, who's Harry? And Harry was a dog that we had, a pet, when I was about five years old. My mom and dad took us over to Grandma and Grandpa's house for the weekend and took Harry and had him put to sleep. And we got home that Sunday night, and we're like, where's Harry? Well, he's gone. He had to go. He, he, you know, one of those things. I never got to say goodbye to my pet dog, Harry, when I was five years old. And when I'm 51 years old, I'm crying. that I'm finally getting to grieve Harry and say goodbye to Harry. That's what withdrawal was like for me. That's what coming to terms with not having lust as a solution was for me. To say no to lust meant facing all those emotions, all those experiences, all that reality that I'd been doing a really good job of shoving down for a long time. So it's not easy. 
And I don't know if your experience has been like that or not, but that's what mine was. And over time, I began to understand, and I had a wonderful sponsor, and the guy would just let me talk. I'd call him up. He'd say, you don't know what's going on, blah, 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 blah. And he'd say, Brad, we're going to take that problem. And he, he had me visualize being on the shore of this big lake. And out in the middle of the lake is this boat. He said, we're going to row that problem out to the boat, and we're going to leave it there. Then we're going to row back to shore. And I go, Okay, okay, I'll do it. And, and, you know, over and over and over. And another thing that he said to me that was very valuable, breathe and stay sober. Get your two points. And, and it sounds so cornball. It sounds so, I don't know, but something about, I could do that. That was the first thing I could do, breathe and stay sober. And for me, that was progressive victory over lust. If anything was, that was one of them. That was a big deal for me. I did 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't know that there's anything magical about 90 and 90. But I did commit myself to the fellowship, and I immersed myself in the fellowship. You know, uh, I think for me, I heard a guy say, you can't audit SA. You know, this is all in program. You know, uh, it's not a matter of, well, you know, whatever. And I'm not going to put a number on how many meetings anybody ought to go to. It's none of my business. But my sponsor told me four to seven meetings a week. He said any more than one a day can interfere with your family life. So something like that's what he set the, set the bar for me. So I did that. I, I learned to pray. You guys said pray, and I learned to pray. I get up and say, God, take away my desire to drink and use drugs and lust today. I had to give up all my other addic- primary addictions. There's, there's probably still some going on. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I just, you know, whatever you got, I'll do it. But drugs, alcohol, hadn't had a drink, hadn't used any kind of mood-altering drug um, since that, that day. I had to give all that up. I, if I do one, the, the others are going to come. Uh, I will say this. I think, I think the uh, sex, sexaholism is the core. It's the one that's closest to my heart. It's the one that goes the deepest. Um, I did a complete, thorough, absolute, best I could first step. You know, and, and there's a lot of different ways to do a first step in this program. And I may be talking about stuff y'all have already done, but if it's just what I look back at and I say, this is what the early stages of my recovery look like. Uh, my, first, my first step was based on basically uh, page one of the 12 and 12, and it's the first page of the first step. You know, one, no one likes to admit complete defeat. No one, you know, we had this absolute humiliation. We learned that we had to be entirely honest. And I knew that I had never been entirely anything except entirely motivated to go act out. I'd never been completely honest. I'd never been absolute anything. So I did what I felt like I had to do was a complete and thorough examination and review of my sexual behavior from beginning to end. And it took a while. And it was hard, and some of it triggered, triggered me. 
Uh, I remember a couple of times when I'd be writing and I'd have to go tell somebody about it. I'd have to give it away. And what I wound up doing, I don't know how many of y'all been to the portable, but what I wound up doing to finish that first step was I would work from 8 to 5. At 5 o'clock, I would get in my car and I'd drive to the portable. And while the 5 o'clock meeting was going on, I would sit in the other room and work on my first step. That was safe safety. Because y'all were next door. You're safe. You were there for me. And, and you know, I feel it right now. And then, and then when, when y'all would get up to pray, I'd come in there and I'd pray with you. And that allowed me to face all that junk finally and get it on paper. And then I gave it away to my sponsor, and he made me adjust some of the things that I'd written before I gave it away in a meeting. And I gave it away in a meeting. And I've got all the names of the people that were at that meeting written in my big book, right, right at the end of the chapter of Vision for You. And the best I could, I've got them all written where they were sitting. And that was a big day for me. That was progressive victory over lust, to give that junk away in a way that, that it wasn't just telling it. It was a, it was a you guys are going to have it. And then he told me, he said, take that notebook home and burn it. And I took it home and I burned it and cried my eyes out. A lot of tears for me in early recovery. I, you know, and, and um, this thing is serious business for me. But anyway, that's some stuff that went on for me. And, it, and I think a lot of that has to do with surrender. I want to keep going. Um, a real turning point came for me when I got to page 40 in the white book. And that's where this idea of lust is. It says, lust is an attitude demanding that a natural instinct serve unnatural desires. Then it says in another place right there in that same little reading, lust, the attitude itself, becomes the controlling factor in the addiction. And then when you read on, it says, for the sexaholic, lust is toxic. This is why in recovery, the real problem is spiritual and not merely physical. This is why change of attitude is so crucial. And I remember reading all that, and I'm going, attitude, attitude, attitude. Lust is an attitude demanding that a natural instinct serve unnatural purposes, unnatural desires, attitude. What? I'm, a, I'm addicted to an attitude. I'm powerless over an attitude. At the core of my illness, lust is not just looking at somebody and wanting to have sex with them. Lust is not just seeing that person smile at me and think, oh, they want me. Lust is an attitude. Well, that just blows me away. You know, in AA, they have this thing. They say, just put the plug in the jug. You know, and that's a pretty good start. But you know what? How do you put the plug in the jug of an attitude? You know, it was blowing my mind. And I had no idea what that was about. So I started looking at and thinking about and talking to people about the word attitude. What's it mean? Et cetera, et cetera. This one guy says, uh, well, I looked it up. And there's a place you can search the, the big book online. And I looked, at, I looked up the word attitude, and it, it shows up about 24 times in the big book. It shows up 104 times in the white book. 
And if you're interested, I've got them written out here. I didn't do this. Uh, it's way too much work for me. But that there's a guy, Ed R., down in uh, Atlanta area, down in Georgia. He literally went through the white book and found the word, it searched out the word attitude, every place it appears. If you'd like to look at this, I'll leave it out. It's available online. I can give you the website. It's that uh, daily reprieve thing that Ed's got all these talks to. But uh, he's got that list of all the places the word attitude appears in the white book. So the question is, what is an attitude? You know, what the heck is it and how the heck do I change it? So that's the next question. What's your understanding of the word attitude as it applies to sexaholism, the illness, and how it applies to recovery? And I'll give you a little bit of my feeling about it, and then we'll then I'll open it up. Uh, for me, attitude is uh, it's an outlook. It's a, it's a disposition. It's, it's the... Uh, the catalyst for action. It sets the tone for how I approach and judge the events of my life. Uh, it's the filing system for all of my experiences in life. Attitudes are the basic rules and assumptions of my personal operating system. Um, in in aer- aeronautics, I don't know if we got any pilots in here, but The way I understand it, in aeronautics, the word attitude applies to a plane's orientation to the horizon. So if a plane has a good attitude, it's going to have good smooth sailing, I mean flight. If it's got a bad attitude, hello mountain, you know? This attitude is the orientation that I take. Um, I think about it in two ways. Attitude is what happens when I wake up before my eyes open. It's like good day, bad day, you know, oh, hell, you know, or thank you, God. It's almost that quick. And it's really not something that is in my consciousness. I'm not going around, well, what's my attitude? You know, I will check my attitude. I want to check my attitude. Lust is an attitude. You know, I don't think about attitude. It's just there. Um, Another part of the way I look at it is, or think about it is, there's this big black kettle inside, inside of me. It's like right, right there. And inside that kettle is stuff is kind of boiling around. And if resentment and fear and ego and pride and selfishness and lust and all of that's there, then that's what comes up out of that that attitude is what comes out of that big kettle that's the aroma the smell what what's going on inside of me it's the thing that's pushing me through and then if i put things like love and fellowship and and honesty and other things into that kettle then the attitude that comes out is a little more uh, reasonable reasonable a little easier to deal with Make, maybe even helps my life get along better. So what's your understanding of, if you were going to give a definition of the word attitude, what would, your, what would you say it is and how does it apply to sexaholism? Let me give you a little more on this stuff. I mean, I hope I'm not just being blabbering words. I really hope this is helping and, and, and at least giving you something to think about. Um, 
uh, you go back to the top of page 40, and it says, the book says, the clue here is that we must differentiate, differentiate between the physical action and the spiritual action, in parentheses, attitude, taking place at the same time in the same individual. So I'm out here living in the physical world. I'm out here checking out the billboards, going to the bookstore, making a connection online, hating my wife, thinking she's the enemy. All of this stuff I'm doing in the physical world, but there's something, there's this spiritual action, this attitude that's going on all at the same time. And I'm not aware of that. I'm aware of the door, the clock, the billboard, you know, the thing, the blackboard, the, that, the, the podium. That's what I'm aware of. But underneath it is this, that's my physical action, but my, my spiritual action is what's going on inside, on the inside. And that's what's driving this addiction. Roy, that's what Roy says. It's taking place at the same time. Because he lives inside his attitude, the individual doesn't see them. He sees only the physical activity and thinks he's feeling guilty for that. It's truly puzzling to him. Hence the confusion on the proper motivation of wanting to get, give up an addiction. Very interesting conversation. Um, I don't know that I understand that passage, but it challenges me to think about it. It challenges me to think about what's going on inside of me on the at level of an attitude, you know, the level of character defects, the level of what is my operating system. And, and um, a lot of times when we hear this, a lot of us hear this word spiritual action, that's what he calls as an attitude is a spiritual action. We start thinking about God, think about religion. Oh, spiritual God. Let's talk about God. Well, yeah, let's talk about God. That's a very important thing to do in this program. But there's, I, had to, I had to put all that to the side because me and the God thing were just out of whack, and I can't even go into what all was going on there, but it was very delusional. Me and God had decided that my wife needed to die. If, you, if that gives you any indications of where I was at spiritually and, and where I was at with God. And, and that, I had thought I heard God say she was going to die. So when it came to the God thing, it was like, look out. <laughs> Somebody may wind up dead. So if she never gets knocked off, you better check with me first. <laughs> Put me on the suspect list. But... Uh, Page 45 gave me a really good uh, introduction to the word spirituality. In recovery, we came to see aspects of our sexaholism lying behind physical, psychological, that parallel similar aspects discovered by alcoholics. Thus, and then on 46, it says, Thus we use the word spiritual, referring to the aspects of ourselves, Underlying and determining all our attitudes, choices, thoughts, and behavior. The very cause, the very core of personality, the very heart of the person. So spiritual action is what comes out of the core of who I am. 
That's what spiritual action is. It's, it's thoughts, choices, behavior, attitudes, the core of my personality, the very heart of who I am. If you look in the AA Big Book, Spiritual Experience, the Appendix 2, then you're going to see it very simply put that a spiritual experience is the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. <coughs> so for me, the, the spiritual awakening, the spiritual action, the, 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 the change of attitude is, is, is just doing some things to, to work on changing my personality, who I am on the inside. It's what it all boils down to. It's what it all boils down to. Uh, I don't think I can change attitudes, but I can change my spiritual actions. You know, that's that's what it what I was thinking about when it came to this. You know, I, I need a new attitude. I need to change my attitude. And I can't change my attitude. I can change my spiritual actions. I can change doing what I do. Um, and I was just going to point out a couple of these spiritual actions that have changed for me and attitudes in, that I think are, are, are part of who I am as a sexaholic and some of the things that have, I've done to change those spiritual actions. Um, I heard a guy say this the other day at a meeting. We were talking about lust as an attitude demanding, and he said, if, if lust is an attitude demanding then I need to learn to develop an attitude accepting. You know, if, I'm, if, if what I want is not right here and now, if, 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 if there's something out there that's going to work, but it ain't here, then the way I'm going to get rid of or change this wanting something that's not here is just be okay with what's here right here now. Accept. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems. This isn't anything new. It's just a reminder, you know. Um, they were talking in a meeting I was in the other day about when does it get okay? You know, we all say, keep coming back, it gets better. Y'all know when it gets better? Anybody new? No? You remember? When does it get better? When I get okay with the way it is now. It gets better when I'm okay with now. And so instead of going around thinking, I don't have enough, I'm not enough, I don't get enough, you know, my basic belief, the core of my disease, I believe, boils down to one basic belief. God is holding out on me. You know? Everybody else is getting enough, but I'm not. God's holding out on me. So I go around grabbing, reaching, holding on to, you know, making sure I get mine. And the problem with it, that is, I can't ever get enough. So I got to learn to be okay with what's here and what's now. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless. I don't know if how any of y'all have ever looked at page thirty on the big in the big book, but basically it says we had to concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. <clears throat> I find, I fought that page for at least 25 years. My first 12-step meeting was about 1984, about the time Dave was coming in. 
And I'm jealous of you, by the way. I felt jealousy this morning because I had, I was exposed to the 12 steps in 1984, but I didn't want to admit, I didn't want to concede to my innermost self that I was different from other people, that there was something different about the way I lived than the way other than they did. I couldn't accept, and I demanded that that I just be okay with the way I was. That there was, I just couldn't accept it, and so. One of the things that I have to do is learn to have an attitude of acceptance. Accept who I am today. I'm a, I'm a precious child of God. I'm loved. The universe knows what I need, and it will give it to me. And the universe knows what it needs from me. So my job today is to cooperate with the universe. And I figure it this way. If the universe is spinning like in this direction and I'm going in this direction, I'm going to get hit in the head with a lot of rocks. You know? That's basically what happened for me for about 40 years. (laughs) You know? But I get in cooperation with the universe, things go a little better. And I just accept it the way it is. So this attitude of demanding turns into an attitude of acceptance. There's another one that I th- attitude I think that sexaholics have is uh, attitude of isolation. When are we quitting? Eleven forty-five. Y'all, I got. I'll, I'll, I want to. I want to get through these and then hear from y'all. But I believe attitude isolation is an attitude. I believe sexaholics, more than any group of people I've ever met. Just live within this sense of, I'm different. I don't want to be around people. I'm uncomfortable around people. It comes from, for me, from my acting out. You know, probably 90% plus of my acting out, I was alone. I was isolated. Physically, up in, the, in my own little space. But it doesn't matter. I can be totally isolated right here in this room. Proximity of of people has nothing to do with my sense of isolation. And I personally believe it comes from loneliness, fear, shame, and abandonment. Either abandonment from other pe- by other people or self-abandonment. But there's this attitude of isolation. I mean... We stand up in the meeting. We go, okay, this week we're going to have a picnic down, you know, so-and-so. I want everybody to come. And, and the room is just like this glazed look. It's like, you know, you're not talking to me. And I used to get angry. and I'd go, damn, blame these darn sex drunks and their apathy. It's not apathy. It's not apathy. It's the disease. It's isolation. What's one of the first things Roy said in the the recovery continues? Isolation is a hallmark of our sexaholism. So what's the antidote? Isolation. The fellowship is the antidote for isolation. Okay? It's an important medicine. Roy said we we can't recover without fellowship. Dave said it this morning. What was it? Working the steps with a sponsor in a fellowship of sobriety. 
Thank you so much for that. That's what we got to do, y'all. Fellowship of sobriety. And fellowship is not just coming to a meeting. It's more than that. It's speaking up. It's telling my story. I'm I'm known for, you know, there's a point in the 630 meeting in in Nashville. If I'm there, everybody just kind of looks at me like, okay, Brad, we're expecting you to talk now because you do every other day. You know, it's not a loving thing. I don't know. Like, here comes, you know. I tell my story, y'all. You're going to hear from me. The white book says every time we tell our story, we get more understanding of who we are. And if you can't tell it in a meeting, grab somebody and do a one-on-one. There are people in our fellowship that are very isolated and very you know, kind of just withdrawn, uh, introvert. And I think it's up to some of us to go out and grab those guys. To, to, hey, how's it going? Talk to me. And I find that some of those guys have some brilliant things to say. They're just shy or whatever. Shyness is part of it, but it's not what I'm talking about. There's an attitude of isolation. One time I was at, at our, our place of worship, and they do this deal where they have everybody stand up and greet one another. And I hate that crap. You know, it's like, ah, oh, not again. So I've got, finally, I've been like, I'm sober like three, four years. And I'm like, I got this brilliant idea. I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom during the, convert, during the greeting time. I'll just get out of here. I'll escape. So I lean over, Vic, hey, I'm going to the bathroom. She's like, looked at me. Because she's like just the opposite. She's like, loves to everybody, prayer, and prayer, just all that junk. And it's like, <laughs> I'm going to the can. So I get there, and I, I walk in. The place is packed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, damn you guys, y'all, been, y'all knew the secret all along, and I'm just now finding out. <laughs> all my people. <laughs> there they were. But anyway... Uh, Fellowship is the antidote for isolation. And I think it's partly, I think it's up to us to kind of reach out. There's nothing sadder to me than the guy that comes to SA for about six weeks. He comes in, he sits in his same seat every time he's there, and as soon as the meeting's over, he's gone. And about six weeks, he's out of there. You never see him again. And what can we do to... I'm not saying anybody in here can fix that guy. I'm not saying that. But what can we do as a fellowship to know what's what's going on in his head? That fear, that isolation, that I can't come out of my shell. I'm scared to death to do that. If I I do that, you know, what, what might happen? But I think there's a lot of stuff we can do to help others, help people come out of their shell a little bit. Um, and anyway, that's a big one. I think there's another one. Uh, we go from guilt and shame and remorse to hopelessness. And ho- excuse me, the attitude of guilt, shame, remorse, hopelessness, and despair to faith, hope, joy, and laughter. You know, I heard a guy on an AA speaker say, once we get you to laugh, we got you. You know, once that belly laugh finally comes out, 
You know, it, air changes everything. But that doesn't always happen right off the bat. You know, I, I've, I'm of the opinion that, that guilt and shame and remorse are kind of like stepping stones to this final feeling of despair. I didn't have guilt and shame when I came to SA. I, w- I'm, I was past all that. I was proud of what I was doing. I had finally found her. She was the one, the pinnacle. I had reached the pinnacle of, of sexaholism. Screw y'all. Screw everybody. I had no guilt or shame for what I was doing. But I was in miserable despair. My life was despair. There was no guilt and shame. I had gone past guilt and shame to despair. So I'm working my way back to guilt and shame now, So, just so you all know. I'm hoping to stay sober a few more years. I'll get there. <laughs> but <laughs> what I did experience was beginning to have some faith and some hope and some joy and some laughter. And that's what I'm discovering here. You know, des- des- despair is related to the word desperation, and it turns out desperate people do desperate things, like go to meetings and get on their knees and pray and work a first step and consider about their own conception of God. I had total doom and gloom in my life. You know, I was one of those life sucks, then you die guys. That's where I was at. And I had a sense when I would go to the portable, I don't know, y'all know that back alleyway, you come in, you can't see the building. And I would hit that, hit that little alley, and my thought was, there's not going to be anybody there this morning. This is the day that's going to be proven that SA is just a farce. And this whole 12-step thing is a house of cards, just fall, and it ain't going to work. And that proceeded, I mean, that continued in my addiction, I mean, in my recovery. I go to meetings thinking there won't be anybody there today. And, and that was kind of how I started. And so you talk about despair, I was just, but I was so desperate, I was willing to go anyway. And I'd come up over there, and there'd be some cars, and I'd say, thank God. Now I go to meetings, and I look whose car around to see whose car's there and who's not. <laughs> I take I take roll before I ever get in the bill. That's why I'm late all the time, Malcolm. So I can figure out who's at the meeting and who's not. Take roll. But now I have hope. And I remember the first time I looked across the room and I heard a guy talking about his recovery, and he meant business. It was real. And I, I, remember, I, I remember looking in his eyes, it was Brad M., the real Brad M. And, 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 and I thought, he means business. He's for real. He's not just throwing words out, make everybody think he's doing something to get back in the big bed. He's for real about his recovery, and if he can do it, I can do it. And, and I got, I, that was my beginning of hope. And then there's this line in the big book on page whatever in the 11th step. It says, we come to rely on it. What is that? Rely on something like the inspiration of a higher power, a God that can actually take away the obsession in my life of lust. 
the God that can inspire me to do things differently than I've done before. That's faith. That, and that had to develop. That has to build. I'm at a crisis point in my life right now. Um, and I have a spiritual dilemma. I'll just share it with you. And it, it has to do with uh, the better I do, the less credit I get. And, and it's like this. I'm, a, I'm doing good. I like doing good. But I don't get the credit. My higher power gets the credit. Y'all get the credit. The program gets the credit. The spiritual principles I'm trying to base my life on get the credit. I don't get the credit. So my dilemma is, do I want to keep doing better? Or do I want to go back and screw things up so I can fix them and get the credit? (laughs) So that's my spiritual dilemma today. The better I do, the less credit I get. And am I willing to take that step? That's my next step of faith. You know? Some people say... God gets the glory. <clears throat> I'm at that point. Do I want to be that guy? God getting the glory. I don't know. I'm really struggling with that. That's my spiritual dilemma today. That's my faith. That's my next step, you know, of doing something. And I've heard people say recovery is all about um, being willing to do things you don't know what the, out, the outcome's going to be. And that's a big place for me. And I think every one of us has to move through those places of faith and and hope and joy. Because joy comes out of this stuff for me. I know on the other side of that dilemma is joy. But I'm just not ready. I'm not sure I'm ready to embrace it or not. I'm not sure I believe it. You know, I'm not sure I'm there. So anyway, that's where I'm at. Um, From self-will run riot to turning our will and life over to the care of God. Roy said that perfectly. I really appreciate that. It, it's, that's, that's our troubles of our, of our own making, the big book tells us. You know, and then that is the whole idea of surrender. Surrender as an attitude. I was going to get into all that, but we're running out of time. But... Um, I don't know. I I spent a lot of time looking at the word surrender in preparation for this and surrender as an attitude. I got nothing on that. I mean, I can tell you that what the book says, surrender is, there's no such thing as surrender in the, as abstract. I tell you all that, but I don't know. I think I do it, but I don't really know how to explain it. So I'm not going to try. I will tell you this. I think it's crucial. You know, the crucial change in attitude. Um, I want to get to this last little bit of an attitude attitude change, and I'm going to try to do it real quick. For me, uh, another word that jumped out at me in recovery was the word exception. And uh, in the big book on page 31, it goes something like this. Uh, We alcoholics, sexaholics have tried to prove ourselves exceptions, exceptions to the rules. And I think there's this attitude of exception, you know, like honesty. Honesty is a good spiritual principle, right? And it's good for y'all. And I'll be honest when it serves my purposes. 
But real gut level honesty, it's like, I don't really, you know, if it's going to mess up a business deal for me to tell the truth, I'm not sure I'm going to do it or not. You know, that's how our company runs. You know, if, if, if honesty serves the purpose, we'll be honest. But if shading things just a little bit helps us get the deal, we'll shade it. And, and that's us being exceptions. We think we're exceptions. You know, uh, uh, what did I say to my wife when I married her? I would, be, I would be faithful and true and honest and have and hold, forsaking all others. Those are some pretty good ideas. But those are for other people. Those don't apply to me. I'm an exception. She never did love me the way I needed to be loved. Therefore, it's okay for me to go out and pursue passion. I never really was after sex. I was after passion. Doesn't that sound better? You know, I'm an exception to the rules. Spiritual principles don't apply to me. They apply to y'all. And we got a really good answer for that one. It's called a fourth step. Fourth step inventory. Time to face the facts. Fearless and searching moral inventory. So rather than being this exception and having this attitude of exception, y'all teach me you got to look at yourself, Brad. You got to face the facts. You got to look at where resentments have kept you blocked from God. You got to look at where fear that you can't measure up has kept you from, from being what God wants you to be. You got to look at your sex conduct and, and, and face that you were selfish and, and, and hurtful and harmed others and ask higher power, God, for a new ideal, a new way of doing things. And by golly, it works. You know, this idea that I'm an exception keeps me sick. I've got, a re- there's a reason why I need to be, keep her phone number. There's a reason why it's important for me to go down here and make sure the strip clubs are still doing what they're doing. I'm an exception. You know, sobriety, that's good for y'all. But you don't understand. I'm, I'm feeling the, the need. If I don't act out today, I might die. You know, nobody, I, you've probably been around a while, Dave. Have you ever seen anybody die from not acting out? It ain't going to happen. But I believe it in my mind. I make the exception. But taking that inventory, being self, looking at self-examination is, 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 is what it's all about. just want to close with just a couple of things. And then I'll shut up. You guys have been very, very uh, generous to me, giving me this time to tell this story. I hope it was helpful. Um, lust is says, lust says more is never enough. Lust, lust wants more, better, different. Lust can never be satisfied because for lust, satisfaction isn't enough. Even the perfect lust scenario is not enough because as soon as it becomes satisfying, lust is no longer satisfied. Lust always wants something it doesn't have. Lust is a continuous state of never enoughness. Every time I act out my lust, 
I confirm its inability to satisfy, and I sacrifice another part of myself to the false idea of self-satisfaction and self-gratification. The program of the 12 steps is not a selfish program, but it's a program of wholeness. Wholeness is not a product of selfishness. Wholeness is a product of relationship. An attitude of wholeness begins when we decide to give our whole self to God to this program of healing. Thanks very much.